wasted land. But most of all, I remember the road warrior, the man we called Max. Welcome to the now playing Mad Max movie retrospective series. Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! Hosted by Jacob. I've seen the style before. Terminal psychotic. Stuart. I'm a fuel injected suicide machine. And Arnie. A burnt out, desolate man. A man haunted by the demons in his past. This podcast will contain detailed movie spoilers and harsh language. You! You can run, but you can't hide! Listener discretion is advised. But this ain't one body's tell. It's the tell of us all. And you've got to listen it and remember. Because what you hear today, you've got to tell the newborn tomorrow. Today we're discussing Mad Max, starring Mel Gibson, Joanne Samuel, Steve Bisley, Tim Burns, directed by George Miller. This is Arnie, the fuel-injected movie-reviewing machine. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob, larger than life and twice as ugly. So welcome to our next retrospective series, Mad Max. I kind of figured we'd get to it someday. I never figured it was because they'd make a new one. Oh, what a glorious day it is. I I am the fan here. We'll talk about our histories with the film, but I am so glad we're getting a new Mad Max. I know we always talk about Star Wars a lot, but this may be my favorite trilogy. I'm just going to be honest. And I'm glad I'm excited to see it get extended into a fourth film. That's always dangerous territory, but I'm excited. Seriously, more than Star Wars, Mad Max. I think it's a more solid trilogy in level of quality. We do get Ewoks. We'll get to Ewoks when we get to Beyond Thunderdome. But yeah, I love this trilogy. And I'm just excited I get to keep reusing these racing gloves that I put on in the last franchise we just covered, Fast and the Furious. I was the newbie there. I don't see a lot of car-driven entertainment movies. Total newbie there. Total newbie here, which may be a surprise to some. I am usually up on sci-fi and indie classics. This is a well-renowned, well-loved series. I was just a little too young for it. When these movies were popular, I was watching E.T. You know, it wasn't quite hitting where I was at with sci-fi. And then Mel Gibson became sort of sexiest man alive lethal weapon guy. And I, he just wasn't that interesting to me. So I I haven't seen many Mel Gibson movies. And this was one of the casualties. I just didn't see Mad Max before today. I really was surprised when I found out you never seen this, Stuart, because yeah, you are the independent film guy. And to me, like this is the independent film. I saw this at a very young age, probably too young. I snuck in. My dad had heard about this Australian film, had rented it, was telling his like brother-in-laws about it. He's like, oh, you got to see this. It's amazing. So hey, all the grownups are watching it. I snuck into that room. I'm like, I just heard car racing and crashes. I snuck in that room. I couldn't have been older than seven and sat there, hid behind a chair and watched this film and was just captured by it. And I actually have seen all three of the released films so far, and it's not necessarily for Mad Mel. It was a bit more for Tina Turner and Thunderdome. (laughs) I mean, we don't need another hero, right? 
No, it's true, actually. I did play piano. I had the sheet music to that. I could play it. And uh, I remember music videos. It was a staple on MTV in that year that it came out. I think it was 1985. Tina had just had her big comeback. And you're right. Unfortunately, I know enough to know that it's not true. But to the way that I think about Mad Max, Tina Turner is the star. <laughs> and <laughs> because that song was playing so regularly throughout the late 80s that in the early 90s, I had a mini retrospective. I rented all three films and watched one a night. And my memory coming back was that the second one was best. The third one wasn't very good, but the first one was utter cheap shit. That was my memory. Is like, and anytime I think about it, I think like El Mariachi level cheap. Not that El Mariachi is bad, but you could just tell there wasn't any money there. And that was my memory of the first Mad Max. Yeah, it was done cheap. Anywhere reportedly from three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand dollars in Australian dollars. I don't know what that means in American dollars in nineteen seventy nine. But there's stories. The the set designer he talked about. You know, when Jesse goes to get that ice cream. And there's that little shop she goes into. They didn't have money for signs. So he went to a convenience store at four in the morning, stole all their signs, put it on the set. And then the next morning at 4 a.m., he put the signs back. I mean, they paid people in beer. There, There's actual the motorcycle riders here. A lot of them are Hell's Angels or another gang called the Vigilantes. The real gangs paid them in beer. Truck drivers paid in beer. They paid for a lot of this film in beer. I thought you were t- going to tell me they didn't have money for an ice cream. I'm like, damn, that is cheap. <laughs> Well, I will say, this was my first time seeing the movie since 90. I watched the Blu-ray. It is obviously heavily restored, but it is not nearly El Mariachi level like I had remembered for 20-some years. My memory of exactly how bad it was, I think, was heavily influenced by back then. I watched the English-dubbed version, where they spoke American. No, no, the the American-dubbed version. Yeah, in the U.S., we're not going to understand those Aussies. Even Mel Gibson, who was born in the U.S., moved to Australia at the age of 12, they overdubbed everyone's voices with American accents, except the cabaret singer. They kept, that was the run original Australian accent in that film. But yeah, they overdubbed anyone. And if you watch the trailers with the American dubs, it does have a cheap feel to it. I think that really hurt it this time. I've decided to go foreign and I'm, I like foreign films. So I went with the Australian accent. <laughs> yeah. And Aussie cinema, you know, it's funny in the eighties, you have one conception about what Aussie films is, right? Paul Hogan, Crocodile Dundee, friendly, family friendly, down under entertainment. But seventies Australian cinema, weird stuff. I am a fan of the exploitation flicks. I didn't see Mad Max, but I did see Picnic at Hanging Rock, Walkabout, Wake and Fright. There are many great movies of the period and strange movies too. The only thing I knew approaching this was that it was going to be, yeah, an independent film that really broke Australian cinema and really opened the doors for it to come to America. Before then, they were these quirky things that only played film festivals and grindhouses. And after Mad Max, it became common for America to go down under and film movies. Did that end with Young Einstein? Was was that the yes. film that put the kibosh? It was. The, we slammed the doors on them at that point. <laughs> Sorry, Yahoo Serious. Fuck off. <laughs> it should be said, this film held the record for highest budget to profit ratio. You know, again, $400,000. It made over $100 million worldwide until the Blair Witch Project. This was a box office 
this success, not just a film that made Mel Gibson something, a film that made George Miller. Guess what George Miller did outside of Mad Max? Babe, what an amazing film. Happy Feet, never saw it, but it won an Academy Award. It was not bad. I mean, it was... Uh, I like Babe. Don't be knocking Babe. No, Babe is an amazing film. I, I, I'm referring to Happy Feet. It was... Happy Feet, Dancing Penguins. I'm, I'm not sure about that one. If you want to make a dancing penguin a metaphor for your homosexual child, go watch Happy Feet. <laughs> what? I had no desire to watch it until now. All right. Yeah, that's what I hear it's all about. I'm sorry I gave you that desire. He also made Witches of Eastwick, which... I liked. Did you? Yeah, it was... Um, I don't know. <laughs> so much in that did you. I'd have to see it again. I remember not caring for it. It was the first movie where I ever heard the word schlong. Well, impressionable. <laughs> so this is a guy who has continued to work. I mean, I wondered if he had just been buried in the Aussie desert since 85. I didn't look him up because I'm not the fan this time. I thought it might be his first film in 30 years. It's good to know not only has he worked, but I've seen stuff he's done. And he is a director. He's stuck with all those original Mad Max films. What makes me excited? This guy's got to be in his 70s now. He's coming back for the new one. I think that is amazing. And yeah, even if we weren't doing a retrospective, I would be seeing this new movie. The trailers have me hooked. It looks like they finally have the budget to make the Carpocalypse movie to end all Carpocalypse movies. We'll have to see in a couple weeks, but... Well, not only the director, but this is our first time discussing Mad Mel. I mean, Mel Gibson, one of the biggest movie stars growing up, and somehow he has avoided the now playing gays. Yeah, that's not hard for me to do. Like I said, I could count on one hand the amount of Mel Gibson movies I've seen in my life. I couldn't count on both hands. Probably start after bringing in toes. I mean, <laughs> in addition to the Mad Max series, which I've seen before, I'm a big fan of the Lethal Weapon series. Even into the 2000s, I went in theaters to see What Women Want, The Patriot. Oh Oh, that Patriot film. Pa I have seen the Patriot. Horrendous. That might be where I lost my fandom for Mel. Yeah. I lost my fandom when he went crazy nuts alcoholic racist, but... Well, Patriot was before then, but yes, that would have done it too. <laughs> but until his much publicized personal troubles that seem to have made him a bit of a pariah in Hollywood, other than his billions earned off Passion of the Christ, I was a Gibson fan. He tried to do a little indie film called The Beaver as a comeback, but not very good. I didn't see it. I actually thought it might be a joke at first. <laughs> it is. That was the problem, was that it was written as a dark comedy. I mean, you call something The Beaver. I mean, the screenwriter's thinking one thing, but nobody told Jodie Foster, the director. She made it a stark, serious, dysfunctional family drama when it was begging to be taken as a dark comedy. And when Mel Gibson was a dark family man. I mean, if that was his attempt to try to gain favor in the public eye, the wrong film to try to do that with. I think the last thing I saw him in was probably Machete Kills. And he was good enough in there to make me forget it was him. Oh, that's right. He was in that. I think he was in, wasn't he in The Last Expendables? Or they're trying to get him for the fourth he one? He was in the third. Okay. Braveheart, Passion of the Christ, Lethal Weapon 2... Patriot. I'm done. <laughs> Hamlet? Nope. Oh, I even saw his Hamlet. That's how big a Gibson fan I was. 
How'd it go? Exactly like you'd expect. He was too old for the role is what I remember most. I saw it when it was new. He was not the young Danish prince. But no, I'm excited to be discussing Mel if we can just say we disagree with his politics, but it's still okay to like movies he's been in. Because I'm going to probably say some nice and not nice things about Mel both throughout this retrospective. Yeah, I don't want to take it my fandom for this trilogy is because of Mel. I mean, I'll, I'll put it this way. I talked about Die Hard. That was the film that, where I really understood the mechanics of, of writing and Robocop. That's like, okay, that is what I want with satire and gratuitous violence that's making a statement. With this film, this has really guided what my aesthetics are for film and not so much in this first one. We'll really get into it with The Road Warrior, but I think I wanted to become punk rock because of these films, because just the weird S&M, Leather Daddy, all this just weird imagery in these films like that. That's what I love. Not so much Mel Gibson. We'll talk about him. But yeah, my fandom for these films has nothing to do with sugar tits Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into it. Arnie, give him the plot. Mad Max takes place a few years in the future in which the Australian outback is a ruthless land overrun by motorcycle gangs, which is kind of how I picture the Australian outback right now as well. I think a lot of our views of Australia become because of this film. <laughs> Well, these gangs rob, rape, and murder with wild abandon. To protect the citizens is the main force patrol police force. And on that force is Max, played by Mel Gibson, one of the force's best at tracking down and sometimes killing the worst outlaws in the land. When the film opens, we see how good Max is when a cop killer named Knight Rider handily escapes two police squad cars. But when Max gets involved, Knight Rider crashes and is killed. But this brings the attention of Knight Rider's gang, led by Toe Cutter and his lieutenant Bubba Zanetti. The gang comes to claim Knight Rider's body and cause havoc, including sabotaging the motorcycle of main force patrolman Goose, who dared try and arrest one of the gang. Goose's body is charred, and seeing his friend in such a state has Max give up his badge and take his wife Jesse and son Sprog on a countryside vacation. But Jesse encounters the gang on a beach, and though she tries to flee, Sprog is killed and Jesse is seriously injured. This is when Max goes mad. We'll have to discuss if that's angry mad or crazy mad. But either way, he puts back on his police leathers, gets in his supercharged pursuit special car, and hunts down the gang, and though Max's arm and leg are run over by the gang's motorcycles, he proceeds to kill all the members. That job done, Max drives off into the Australian wilderness as credits roll. So yeah, is it angry Max or is it crazy Max? Well, there is a question at, towards the beginning after we'll talk about the scene with Knight Rider. But yeah, the early on, we find out that Max is dealing with, you know, this line of civility. This is some post-apocalypse going on here. We're never really quite told. We're just told in the near future, there's really cool signage, you know, Anarchy Road, which apparently is a real road in Australia. <laughs> I would never go down that road. But yeah, skull and crossbones. Don't go on this road. There's been 59 deaths. They don't have the money to tell us what happened, but they show it to us. This is a scary place where civility is, is just barely holding on. So I'm going to say this Max goes mad as in and crazy he loses his civility my feeling is the world has gone mad we don't know how far into the future but it's gotten worse this is dystopia and so 
he's trying to hold on. And whenever we see Max at home and his home life, it's actually kind of a haven. He'll be by the beach, hanging with his wife, jamming on a saxophone. I guess that's some version of paradise What, the baby plays with a gun? (laughs) Well, yes. But my, my sense is, every time he has to suit up and get into the car, he's going to crazy land. That he is resisting the urge to go insane. And from the get-go, when we have this opening scene, we see what crazy looks like, courtesy of Knight Rider, cackling as he barrels down the road, and it's the cops who are the ones that are considering sniping innocent people in the field having sex. I didn't think he was going to snipe him. I thought he was just using the scope to watch him have sex. I agree. I thought he was just peeping Tom. Initially, I didn't know they were cops. I didn't know what was going on. But once it all was played out that they were cops, I thought he was just having a looky-loo. I guess in retrospect, it might look like that. But I liked the fact that, yes, we think we're looking at the bad guys in these opening shots. And it's quite a head turn to find out they're the ones that are going to go stop the bad guy. Yeah, I mean, this production's a real gonzo production. Barely a script. There was so much improvisation going on. No money to really do anything. You do have to wonder, like, what are their intentions? You don't really know. So much here is left to your imagination or just left to figure out from watching. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. For this film, this is all about just trying to take this world and this world gone mad, and it really works. Whether that cop is just watching or he's planning on sniping, it's dirty either way. I got to ask you, Arnie, you were impressed with a car driving under a semi. That's why I was kind of like, yeah, that's neat, but come on. I mean, this opening chase... This is the real deal. I don't think the Fast and the Furious have done anything to really touch on what we get just from this opening scene. I think you need to go back and rewatch those Fast and Furious <laughs> films because their money allowed for so much more. I will say this opening chase is astonishing, possibly because I came in with very low expectations from that watching 20 years ago, but the amount of sheer metallic carnage that happens, the way cars are crashing into each other and being torn apart, it's very visceral. I know this was a few years later, but it beats the pants off anything Spielberg did in Duel. Yeah, I think Duel's a different type of film. He wasn't doing a lot of crashing. But yeah, here, I mean, what's amazing is how they filmed this. That Again, you couldn't film a movie the way they filmed this today or, or even 10, 15 years ago because it was so dangerous. Like they have cameras, you know, a guy getting pulled holding a camera six inches off the ground at 120 miles an hour with cars zooming 12 inches from them. I mean, dangerous stuff. They're just using stunt people and really wrecking cars. I mean, there's no CGI here. They don't have a lot of cars to wreck everything's got to be done pretty much on one take you got to roll and wreck that car great the first time i'm feeling for charlie in this charlie seems like the normal one he was the one that was not looking at the naked people he was in the car monitoring the radio he's the one that's i'm gonna drive even though roop is the one that's like trying to get in there they keep getting into accidents and he just keeps getting hurt. First, he gets a busted femur. He gets like glass in his neck. Later, he's going to have like one of those electro larynxes. Charlie goes through a lot. Yeah, you better send a meat truck. Charlie's copped a saucepan in the throat. Oh, that was him with the vocalizer later? With the voice box. Yeah. I just thought that was really weird that they had somebody with a voice box. I figured this guy died here at the beginning. No, no. no. And the thing is... George Miller was a doctor, an emergency room doctor, before he decided to direct. So this is all stuff he's seen. When you see that glass in the throat and a lot of these wrecks, that's all firsthand experience. It's weird that they hold back on Mel. I guess they're building up to him. You know, he's getting the same reports that 
big bopper. That's one of the police cars that's pursuing. And the March Hare is the other car that's pursuing Knight Rider. But Mel is cool and calm. He's anything but mad. He's slowly putting on his leather. He's not racing to the scene of the crime. He's waiting for Knight Rider to come to him. He's the last hope when these guys wipe out. And I think that they give him that kind of hero's entrance. It's the kind of entrance I'd expect from, like, a Clint Eastwood. Now, this is big given that Mel was nobody at the time, right? It wasn't his first role, but he hadn't done a lot. He was never a starring man. But the fact that they don't show his face, the fact that he's not racing to the scene, all of that tells me that this guy's going to be the badass and that that's why they're holding him back. Yeah, what's surprising is there's so little Mel in this first half. Like, they really go out of their way to set up everything that's going to drive him mad. And yeah, even here at the beginning, it starts that way. We see, yeah, he's, I don't know if he's shaving, then he's putting on his glasses, putting on the leathers. It takes a long time. Everyone else has to fail. The two cars have wiped out, Goose has wiped out and broke his leg, and now it's up to Max to stop the Knight Rider. They're so dysfunctional, it makes me like him more that he's not as manic as they are. I mean, they're all sort of maybe enjoying the chase. Like, they're crazy. I mean, Mel hasn't gone mad yet. Mel doesn't want to. Mel wants order. These guys like the pursuit. And I feel like that's the difference here. You know, this police force, I gotta say, knowing how much you love RoboCop, watching this movie, I do feel like Vorhoven got a lot of that sense of a dysfunctional environment made even more dysfunctional by a broken police force from this movie. Talk about Vorhoven when Ed 209, we get that first shot where he just shoots up that body and they just let it go to town. I mean, we get that kind of sensibility here. This isn't a bloody film, but right off the bat with this opening chase, we have a toddler wander out to the middle of the road. And one of the featurettes on this, they were talking about people were screaming, covering their eyes. And it was just an editing trick to make it look like these cars just missed this toddler. But they don't pull punches in this. Yeah, wait a minute here. They didn't really put the child in danger. No. No, it's quite obvious they didn't to me. But, uh, I mean, we're a bit more sophisticated than audiences in 79. But even the fact you'd have a toddler, and I can't think of mainstream action films where you endanger a toddler like this. Well, this is the surprise, is that I thought Mad Max was going to be comparable to Terminator, and that Road Warrior was going to be like Judgment Day, and I don't know, maybe Thunderdome was going to be like that Rise of the Machines, but uh, that was how I saw it happening. Each one would escalate and build off the next one. But this is a midnight movie, and there were a lot of midnight movies that were doing this trick back then. I'm going to walk it back and say there have been plenty of films in the 70s by this point that have been on this model. Death Race 2000, Roger Corman, one of the early films of Sylvester Stallone before he made Rocky, was this kind of Carmageddon event. Ron Howard early film, uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. That For midnight movies, when you don't have any money to do anything else, you just put people, starlets, wannabes, in vehicles and crash them. I feel like that was a proven formula by 1979. We just hadn't seen it from Australia yet. We didn't know how crazy they were down there. And putting kids in the road is also an old trope, especially if you don't hit them. What they pull during this opening chase is not spectacular. What they do at the end, that's worth talking about. (laughs) Having a kid get passed by a couple of cars. No, you've seen the baby buggy get hit so many times only to see that the baby wasn't in the buggy. I mean, that's an old con they've pulled for years. But I'm not going to diss this opening chase, though. The fact that on no money... 
they could smash up that van the way they do and they could pull all this off. I'm surprised if nobody was legitimately hurt because there's so much going on. I love that the cops just keep like patching their car back together and they just want to stay in the chase. That's what I mean. The cops feel crazy. Mel is the only one to like. When we get past this scene and Knight Rider dies, I, I think Mel drives him into another auto accident that's just over the hill <laughs> that some man is trying to flag him and warn him, but I guess he needed to be about a mile closer to, to give him the proper head notice. I'm not sure Knight Rider would have ever slowed down, but the point being, Knight Rider is killed. Mel goes back to the police force. He is the only one that doesn't feel crazy. No, and you know, you mentioned Knight Rider. You said you thought that Verhoeven pulled from this. I see so many 80s things that pulled from this, though. Knight Rider? Tell me that didn't possibly inspire the name of a car-based TV show. And then... I don't know, Michael. That's a little <laughs> bit of a stretch. <laughs> you think? I, I think I, 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 I... Yeah, it's spelled differently. Yeah, they went, they went for a pun in the TV show. Okay, uh, maybe. And also, a shot I always associate with Terminator is like the driving down and seeing the white line of the highway divider, and they use that here. I think that, yeah, Cameron definitely had seen this movie when he was making both Terminator films. And I do like, speaking of the Knight Rider, he gives a shout out to ACDC. I am the rocker, I am the roller, I am the out of controller. <laughs> I didn't notice that, but uh, they're an Aussie band. I guess that would make sense. Oi. You didn't get Oi's in the American dub. I also think this entire movie inspired Max Headroom, the TV series. Talking about inspiration, I just want to put it out there. I feel like there were a lot of movies prior to this that did what this movie was doing. The thing that feels different is the place, is the fact that we're in Australia watching it. I do feel like there was a lot of near-futuristic road disaster films. That that was the staple of a you you go in your car to a drive-in and you watch this kind of thing. Yeah, there obviously there's something that touched audiences with this film than all those other ones. I mean, again, a hundred million dollar box office in the late seventies, early eighties. That, that's nothing to joke about. But yeah, the Australian outback. I mean, they're out in the Melbourne area. I love the scenery here. You were talking about the post-apocalypse, but a lot of this is just beautiful to look at. It it's kind of a washed-out scenery, but I do love the cinematography in this film when you just see these landscapes with these cars zooming by there is a beauty to it yeah i've always had a fascination with the australian outback actually and there's just something about it here that just makes it even more alluring the fact that it's just full of these outlaws and you know that's you think of the botany bay and how australia was founded seeing a whole bunch of outlaws and despicable cops there it just adds to the entire mystique of that country Question then, is this satire? Would you classify this as a dark comedy? Are we laughing at the beginning? Certainly not laughing as maniacally as Knight Rider, but is it meant to titillate and amuse, or are we to be horrified? I do think this film does play as a horror film later on. I feel at the beginning here, again, with the cop looking through a scope, watching a couple have sex, the Knight Rider, the way he's just kind of evangelizing over the speaker. When we get to the toe cutter, when he goes to see the body, I do feel there's a lot of satire here and that, yeah, it is funny. There's a dark humor going on. There's something sad about this world, but they're having fun with it. Yeah, I think that it's supposed to be a good time. I don't think you're supposed to be scared. I don't think you're supposed to be laughing like 
like it's a Monty Python film, but I think that when you discuss midnight movies and the type of audiences that go to that, yeah, they're going to be cheering the explosions. They're going to be laughing at a good time, laughing perhaps as maniacally as Knight Rider at all the carnage going on. No pun intended on carnage. They even pull into this small town milk bar. I Clockwork Orange. That was the tone I kept thinking about. As soon as I saw Milk Bar, I was like, that's it. All of these people are terrible. We are in a world where everyone is despicable, with the exception of Mel Gibson. And yet, because there's irreverent humor, because they're finding physical comedy and just laughs in the extremes of things, I think we're somehow charmed. The bad guys are more fun, really, than the cops. I'm going to say Toe Cutter is one of my all-time favorite Mad Max characters. Shakespearean-trained actor. Like, this is a guy who does Shakespeare, along with the actor who played Johnny the Boy. Like, they got people who knew how to act, but you can see it with the Toe Cutter. This is a character, again, talking about the improv and the gonzo feel of this movie. This character, I don't know if you guys noticed, he just changes accents whenever he wants. Sometimes it's Australian, sometimes it's Scottish. I love the presence of the Toe Cutter when he comes to this milk bar and his whole game rolls up. I'll agree. I have not rewatched The Road Warrior in decades, but I mean, the iconography of those punks is so in my memory that when I saw these guys walk in, I'm like, oh, they're kind of bland. They just look like real world motorcycle guys. They're wearing leather. They're Because know. they were most of them. <laughs> but then Toe Cutter starts his speech and this guy is charismatic and engaging. He's a screen stealer more than Mel in this film. Toe Cutter has my attention and I love him. I don't know if he's wearing mascara or what's going on with that crazy ass hair, but he conveys menace, but yet he's still not hateable. He never cuts any toes, oddly enough. For a name like that, I thought that he would brandish violence. But do we ever actually see him do any of the killing? I feel like he outsources all of it. Yeah, he's the leader. He's telling other gang members. like, But he is menacing. So he, they go to see the body. There's this little coffin holding the remains of the Knight Rider that they're going to get. And it's just, again, talking about that black humor, you get this train station agent just like, there's not much left of him. And you get that movement by Toe Cutter, like where he grabs his face and just freezes and talks to him like, take off your hat. Like, there's something so menacing about him. He doesn't need to cut off toes. I'm scared. Yeah, I, I'm with you. He, he's effective as a, a villain, despite the fact that the part really gives him very little to do. He's angry because Knight Rider was a part of his gang. We saw no evidence of that, but I can believe it. it well, <laughs> Knight Rider is saying, I know Toe Cutter. I know he, he, if you listen to everything he's spouting at the beginning, he mentions Toe Cutter. Oh, okay. And that's hard to do, I will say. Yes. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I, I definitely rewound and used closed captioning where it was appropriate. Yeah, subtitles might have been your friend. The accents, I wouldn't want a dub version, but I, I did feel like, yeah, that it was hard to hear exposition that was important because of the accents and just the way that the characters delivered their performances. But yeah, I, to me, that's that's one too many crazies in a gang. Like, Knight Rider had to die. There's no way that two guys like this could function in the same unit. It would just be too much. They would just always be trying to out the you ever hung out with actors? I mean, like, you go crazy with those two in a room. He ought to be grateful that Knight Rider's dead. But no, he is going to get revenge. A, a big thrust of this movie is him seeking revenge against the police force for killing his friend. 
But then if he's here to get revenge for the Knight Rider, why do they attack that couple in the car? What did the couple in the car do? They have gas. And I think they showed fear. Like they were standing around and then the gang started picking on someone else and they got scared and they took off. And I think that, you know, they're rabid dogs. They're going to go after who's scared of them. They're a gang. They're bad guys. I think it's horrifying. Like I've been having a good time, but when they attack this car and again, this is, there's no breakaway glass here. They just actually chopped up a car with real tools. Like the aftermath that you see, the woman there just kind of wrapped in the sheepskin from the seat of that car with the rope tied around here. That's horrifying stuff. It really is. And then they work in an animal motif, too. They always have crow sounds when this gang is around or they juxtapose crows flapping their wings with them dragging the bodies out of the car. That they're, What they're is real- with that, seeing the shot of the crow in the midst of that? Jacob, was there some symbolism involved there? Because I don't get the crow. Uh, they had footage of it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. They don't talk about it. I Again, a lot of this film, it, it's just gonzo filmmaking. They, they're just shooting things, whatever they're capturing on film, I think they're using, and they're like, oh, that's cool, that's menacing to have this crow. It, it's animalistic, so I think they go with it. There's no explanation on any in any of the commentary or anything. You gotta have tricks when you're editing a low-budget film and you don't have all the coverage and there's no money to go back. I I know this much. This movie is very, very rough. From an editing standpoint, the jumps that we're asked to make, the cuts from scene to scene, can sometimes be pretty abrasive. I mean, you definitely sense that they didn't have all of the footage that they wanted to. So that was a nice way of making what probably was the fact that they didn't have enough footage of the attack into something artistic and menacing and and again establishing a motif i didn't know if they were trying to have an artistic way of like rape via bird i just didn't get the symbolism of flapping wings and rape it was maybe if there was a swan i know zeus turned into a swan to rape someone in greek mythology but there is symbolism like there's weird things going on here i don't think there's anything with the bird but we'll see you know all these bike riders they'll be passing toe cutter and he's like blessing them as he's holding this coffin later on with johnny the boy it it almost seems like a baptism as they walk out in the ocean like there's a lot going on that George Miller just thought of there's backstory here to these characters. We're never told, but it's things that they're using to motivate whatever decisions they're making in the acting. Did they rape the guy too? I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he, I mean, when we find him, his pants, are, I mean, he has no pants. He's literally running bare ass naked. I think I will talk about it more in the road warrior, but I know people have criticized these films there, especially with road warrior. There's going to be a homosexual undercurrent to that with the way the villains act. And uh, you see it here when we first see Johnny, the boy and toe cutter, he's Johnny, the boys grooming his hair, pulling toe cutters hair back out of his face. Bikers are dancing with each other. I mean, there's people could see that in these films. And so, yeah, there could have been rape there with the guy. I wouldn't be surprised. These seem like awful people with the way they treat others. And again, going back to Clockwork Orange, I mean, I think anyone that's ever seen that movie remembers how graphic the rape scenes in it are. It just feels like this is the world where, yes, women are just constantly being attacked and violated in this way. It's quite upsetting here. I think this was probably the most upsetting scene in the film. 
Mm, I, I think there's one a bit more for me. I, I think it's horrifying that when you see that woman lying there and Goose is trying to like draw her in and saying you're safe and she's running away. I mean, and she's chained up. I mean, yeah, there's something horrific about that. I, and I was wondering how you'd take that, Jacob, because knowing your stance on the whole, you know, women in refrigerators thing, we kind of talked about it with Kick-Ass 2, where there was a rape in that comic that they took out of the movie. I wasn't sure if you'd go for rape as symbol of evil or not. I mean, I think it's a hugely evil act. It easily turns any sane audience member against these gang members, but... I wasn't sure if you'd feel it was a step too far, even though I knew you were a fan of the films. Yeah, you know, I, I see this film in context. In the 70s, that's what you did. It, you know, I like exploitation films, and this this is a staple of that. They don't treat women well, and I, I still like those films. I think you have to think about what you're going to do. And I, George Miller, as, as gonzo as this is, as, as little of a script as there is, there's definitely a vision he has that he wants to portray. And I think this scene effectively shows that vision. It, it scares us now. I've been enjoying this, but now this is where the film starts to turn for me, and it starts to actually get scary. It starts to become a horror film. Yeah, we know that these guys are going to come for Mel, even though Mel didn't exactly really kill Knight Rider. Knight Rider killed Knight Rider, but he's going to take the fall. And, of course, they also add to that complexity by arresting Johnny the boy for these crimes. He's the only one that gets caught for this rape, for this attack on this town. But it's said in dialogue, just to be clear, I think what I understood is there was a trial for this attack, what, a couple of hours later, days? I'm not sure how much time has passed. Nobody came. The woman didn't testify in her defense. None of the gang people were there to offer character witness. No eyewitnesses were on hand. Basically, Johnny the boy can walk free. The justice system is just as broke as everything else in this future society, and this rapist can walk free. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I love the irony, you know, that the police are doing all this in the halls of justice. Made me think very, you know, super friends, but... Yes, Fil filmed at an old sewer plant. <laughs> it looks it. I mean, I believe that the cops have taken over a sewer plant for this beat-up police station with the guy with the voice box talking, and yeah, nobody coming to convict this guy on his crime. Now, and they're turning against each other. I mean, if I understood an earlier scene, the captain of the precinct is actually setting up Max to get busted because he's interested in outfitting his police car with Nas, and they're, like, spying on him with guys in suits talking about how they can get rid of him. This was a curious scene. It didn't really go anywhere. Yeah, I don't know if Fifi, the name of the <laughs> captain here... <laughs> I don't know if he's going to get Max fired. I, I do have the feeling like he's the one trying to keep the main force patrol civil. Like, we got to be the heroes. We got to be the good guys. We're the symbol of society trying to stay together. I, I feel like that's the role he's trying to play. You know, this feels very 70s to me. Silent majority. I think of the first Dirty Harry film. Like, yes. about this criminal who gets off on technicalities. And that's how this is. Goose takes this personal because he's the ladies man. He feels bad for that woman that got raped so when johnny the boy gets off yeah he goes to attack johnny the boy and the lawyers are there protecting him this feels very 70s and this this whole we're losing control of what right and wrong is to me when i watch this 
Oh, yeah. 70s revenge films. That seems to be like all I can think of when I think of 70s films. There's, you know, Death Wish. There's I Spit on Your Grave. All of these films that I've seen that are all about something bad happens and then the response is a murder spree. I think Last House on the Left, Wes Craven kind of had one of those. And really, that's what we're watching here, too. It takes a bit longer in the buildup to get there, but what we're watching is all these indignities happening to the people Mel love, and by the time we're at this trial thing, we're only 30 minutes in, it's been pure action, and I'm like, okay, how much longer till Mel gets mad? It's, it's gonna be a while longer yet. Yeah, how much longer till the wife is dead, right? One thing I know about any Mel Gibson movie is that his spouses, his children, whatever they die so that he can look skyward with tears in his eyes scream no and get revenge <laughs> i know that this is where this is going i am shocked that it is not the twist to get the movie going into act two it's really the climax of the film but we know in every scene that he's playing with his wife and doing sign language and something with a rubber mask i'll never understand that <laughs> all of this that's an important symbol that comes back later on <laughs> i guess but the point is, I don't believe these guys are romantics. I don't believe that they think these things are cute. They are just crude representations of cuteness that they want to defile and thus make their hero go over the edge. I thought Max would be mad much earlier than he is, but they target his friend first. I agree. I thought he was going to be mad so much earlier. Again, saw this like 25 years ago. My memory was that the wife dies in the first scene and the rest of the movie is him having revenge. That it takes as long as it does. And it doesn't even start with the wife. It ends with the wife. Poor Goose. And of course, I'm thinking Top Gun, Maverick, and Goose. Yes. Goose is going to get cooked first. I do like Goose in this. Again, he's the cocky ladies man. I love this Sugartown cabaret bar he's at. Like that singer. So something so odd and like post-apocalyptic looking about her. Like, I love that scene. It's this weird little musical scene in the middle of this film, but it's a piece of set building that I, I just love the little details here. You know, the fact Goose is going to better and there's a baby, a doll, plastic doll, like nailed to the door of her room. It's really disjointed, Jacob. This comes out of nowhere. All of a sudden, she's singing about on a licorice road. Is this a cop bar? Is that some kind of like cop metaphor or something like that she does cops licorice road i don't know what's going on here this was strange i can't say that i loved it it certainly was it was one of the many times i noticed that this movie can suddenly yank you in a new direction the point of it though is that he's being stalked that johnny the boy has not taken his freedom as a chance to just go on his way and attack new villages he's going to trail goose he's going to wreck his bike he's going to make sure that he gets payback for beating him up. Here's the weird thing for me. Toe Cutter's not actually the main bad guy. Like, he's the gang leader. But Johnny the Boy, I think it's the story arc here. Like, it's all about him trying to prove that he's as badass as the Knight Rider. There's this whole scene at the beach where he pulls a shotgun to shoot this mannequin before anyone else can. He says, we got to get the bronze. Like, he's trying to act the tough guy. He's trying to prove himself to Toe Cutter that he's as cool as the Knight Rider. And so it's, yeah, he's the one that kind of gets this arc. Toe Cutter, he's doing all the cool things. But it's Johnny the boy that's going out and sabotaging Goose's bike. Then he needs to see a stylist because he's just not punk enough to hang with this crew. He needs some, <laughs> I don't know, feathers or something. <laughs> yeah, I agree. He will be the last man that Max has to deal with. 
and that's strange. He doesn't really want to go as far as Toe Cutter does, though. I mean, yes, Goose does, you know, get thrown from his bike. He goes to get a truck to haul it back to civilization and is thrown off the road in a wreck. I think Johnny is done. I think that's what he wanted to do. You beat me, now I beat up on you. He doesn't want to throw the match down. Toe Cutter makes him burn this guy alive. Right. He's not a killer, necessarily, at this point. I He wanted to be. I mean, we saw him on the beach when he tried to take the shot at that mannequin. Yeah, big big guy when you're talking about, about fashion dolls, but yes, <laughs> n- not really willing to commit here. It's strange that they would build him up as the biggest bad when really he's much more humane. I, I think Toe Cutter's the big bad. Yeah, but Johnny the Boy's going to be the last one alive. That's going to be the main revenge scene for Mad Max. Yeah. That's the weird thing. I'm going to admit it. As much as I love this film, it does feel like Toe Cutter should be the last one remaining for Max to defeat, not Johnny. Well, yeah. we'll talk about it. Is Johnny dead? We can figure that out. But because Goose isn't dead, you might want him to be, and he might be within 24 hours based upon the rate of infection upon third degree burns. But he, after Johnny sabotages that motorcycle, Goose just becomes this charred hunk of flesh, but we never see him dead. That's the one thing about this movie. Both Goose and Max's wife neither necessarily die. Yeah, and you know what? They don't necessarily show a lot of blood and carnage in this when you really watch it. It's it's left to the imagination. When we see Goose, I love the setup. And again, this is because George Miller was an emergency room doctor, like this weird cage around Goose to hold the sheets because obviously they can't touch him because his skin is just charred and open pusses and wounds. And so you just see this like shadowed body underneath there. And you know we do see an arm fall out. They're not going to show us the face. They don't have the money to do that. They leave it to a close up of Mel's reaction. Yeah, I think you've seen too many slasher flicks, Arnie. You're looking for characters to return. They're dead. I I don't feel there's any ambiguity about when characters perish here. Well, they specifically say that the wife is holding on. She needs a miracle, but she's holding on. It could go either way. If this film wanted them dead, they'd obviously be dead. This film wants them to be near death. Well, I, I think for Goose... Being charred, that's death. He's not going to be betting any Sugartown Gabaret singers anymore, looking like uh, s'mores. Yeah, that, that's a licorice road even she wouldn't take. <laughs> but it, it's what gets Mel motivated. He feels like this is his destiny if he keeps doing what he's doing. I wish I were getting that from a performance. I'm not really going to knock Mel Gibson here. I don't feel like it's in the script for him to have dramatic moments. He has like a waking up from a nightmare moment. He has a few scenes where he's talking to other characters, but there's no real well-articulated dramatization for him to express whether he wants to be a cop or not. We've largely understood him as a guy in an outfit, and he's saying that he feels like he's going to go crazy if he keeps doing this, but I'm not feeling that. I agree. Mel isn't very good in this film as far as dramatic range. He's very good at looking tough, wearing leather, and pretending to drive. But anytime he's got to give this performance, it's honestly painful. And that makes, I would say, this last act of the film pretty terrible. And I mean terrible. When he says he's going to quit the force, I'm like, where is this coming from? And then when he's going on this trip with his wife, I mean, on the one hand, I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that every single Lethal Weapon film ever was a remake of Mad Max. 
I was thinking, wow, that's why they have so much saxophone in Lethal Weapon. Yes, me too! his wife in Mad Max apparently plays it. Yes, I was like, it's the same fucking score! It took me <laughs> half the film to realize she wasn't actually deaf. Because in one of the early scenes, she's doing sign language. And, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, the way she was playing that saxophone, I thought that potentially... <laughs> But she's not impaired in any way. Her only impairment is that she's head over her heels in love with this guy. I mean, I will give you this. For me, Mel Gibson is almost a non-entity. It, he's here to look tough. His acting, it doesn't ruin anything for me when he's got to give this speech about how he waited years to tell his father how he felt about him and he doesn't want to do that with his wife. It's fine. It doesn't ruin the film for me. He's able to do an adequate job. But yeah, it's shocking. This is the film that is known for making Mel Gibson. He's really in it so little until the end here. And he doesn't do a whole lot. He doesn't have a whole lot of speaking parts. I would go further. I would say it's a detriment to this movie. And you would not want to watch a Dirty Harry movie where the gangs were the only things you were paying attention to. Or a Death Wish movie where Charles Bronson barely shows up and doesn't seem that engaged. I mean, he goes on vacation. He's like, I want to quit the force and Fifi's like, no, go on vacation. And next thing you know, they're buying puppies and swimming and riding in some like uh, van with like one of those uh, psychedelic spaceship <laughs> kind of paintings on there. It was the 70s. It was the 70s. I don't think you could buy a van without but it. <laughs> I, I thought he was the guy that was going to bust the people in that kind of vehicle. I didn't realize he <laughs> wanted to be the guy in that vehicle. And he looks so terrible in the khakis. It's like he's no longer on the force, so he's dressing business casual for this trip. Yeah, this is not the way we wanted to see him. I mean, I really feel like I wanted to see his struggle within being a cop. That he quits it so easily, and we spend so much time on this road trip, so is a mistake. Much. It's a mistake. Yes, it is so painful. And that they encounter the gang pretty early on this road trip. They stop for that ice cream and a tire, and I'm like, oh, here it is. It's all going to go down. No, they're going to escape, and she's going to very slowly walk to a beach, and nothing happens and now she's laying at the beach and it's a cute scene because the dog's all dirty but nothing happens and finally she leaves the beach what the hell it's kind of a Jaws moment. Yeah. Yes, they're on vacation. She needs some guy in the balls. She ends up ripping the hands off of uh, poor Kundalini and I, I love that they like bring it to a sheriff and he's like, nah, we'll throw it away. Maybe someone will come. I doubt it. Don't worry about it. Mel is a cop. Like you'd think he'd be concerned about a gang that like threw chains on his car and tried to attack his wife. But maybe that's a statement on Australia at, at in this future. Maybe it's so commonplace to him. He doesn't put it together that this is the gang that hunted down Goose that's now hunting him. He's just like, no, there's crazies everywhere and I want my ice cream. But yeah, eventually they do have what would be recognizable at this time as a Jaws moment. She goes down by the beach. We think she's going to be attacked. We've been told to worry about somebody in the woods from their Aunt May. I guess, is she a relative? But it's her son. I think she said, like, watch out for my boy, not watch out for anybody in this gang. I think it's the mentally handicapped boy that shows up later. Yeah, he's mentally challenged. He's this big guy, but don't worry about him. He, but he kills dogs. He kills and, they, like, hangs their no, dogs. No, he doesn't. That's the bikers. That is Wait, the bikers. How do you know that? 
They're taunting her in the woods. You can see them. I mean, the way they play that, you see shadows in the woods. You see that dog run off on the beach. You see the bikers pull up. They look down on her. I take it as the bikers. I never felt conclusively it was the bikers. And when they reveal that Bino is there, I think that he is a dog killer. And I think it's really <laughs> weird that Max wants to go off hunting with him. I'm like, he must have really not liked that dog. I took it as the bikers and I couldn't believe they killed the dog. You never kill the dog in movies. That's when I knew these bikers were really evil. <laughs> People were really upset that the dog was killed. Rape, murder of humans, but you kill a dog. Uh-oh. Yeah, what's weird is I remember there's a dog in the Road Warrior. I guess it's not this dog, though. He doesn't make it. No, he no. definitely doesn't. And they not only stop with the dog, pretty soon the wife and baby are dead. This is so much more harsh than having the baby in the road earlier that it was a fakery. Here, uh, we don't get to see it, and that's a bit of a cheat. We just, and I don't know how you die from being run over by a motorcycle. Maybe that's very really? commonplace. <laughs> when there's like 10 of them. Yeah. <laughs> Tire goes overhead, dead. Yeah, but wouldn't the motorcycle flip? It's not a car. It's not going to be that stable and just handle a human bump. They're bikers. They know what they're doing. And I yeah. love the way this is shot. I'm glad we don't see carnage here. It's so much more effective. The way she does that turn, and then you just see that baby shoe and that ball rolling down the street. To me, that that is effective storytelling, effective movie storytelling. So much better than seeing a face ground into the road. To me, it's we don't have the money to actually hit a person with a motorcycle. Uh, toss this ball. It'll do the same thing. And for me, it's simply a matter of I can't believe it's taken this long to get here. I mean, we're <laughs> we're nearly at the end of the movie. There's only like 15 minutes left. Oh, I'm with you there, Stuart. I think that I might be more forgiving about this if it were an hour earlier in the film. Not that I didn't like the first half hour, but this entire road trip with Mel and his wife and his baby. But now, Max, finally, he Mel gets to do his thing. He falls to his knees. I was thinking Wolverine and your hatred of it, Stuart. No, yeah, the Aussies pioneered this. Mel did it first. It's a cliche. And I, it's not just this movie, but this movie is the prototype for every Mel Gibson revenge movie afterwards, Patriot included. I mean, he just, he always was looking skyward. I don't know how many relatives got killed in the Patriot that he, like, turned tearfully to the sky and shrieked about. I mean, it just... Like everyone, like great ants and stuff before he was finally ready to kill. It's just, it's just what he does. But here it is. It's happening here in this moment. I just feel like why have that moment with the two in the hot rod and bring in that queasy stuff about the rape? If you had put this kill back at that moment, that's when it's logical, right? That's when you'd want to have it. You'd have so much time for Max to be crazy. At least do it 15 minutes earlier in my thinking. You know, act one is the setup with Knight Rider. Act two is the gangs terrorize and finally push Mel too far. Act three is Mel goes mad and fights back. But here, it's literally, like you said, the last 15 minutes. And even some of that is spent with him staring at this rubber mask that looks like Corey Feldman from Friday the 13th Part 4. What is the mask of? I like that scene with the mask. He, earlier, he put it on when he's struggling with, uh, am I good cop? Am I bad cop? To me, I don't know. That's like, he's becoming the monster. He's embracing the monster. It's silly symbolism. But I like that he's holding that mask and that now he's going to become the bad guy. He's going to become the gruesome thing that's 
that's going to seek revenge. He's not going to uphold the law anymore. And, you know, would you expect more time spent on a revenge story? Yeah, they had more plans. They didn't have the money. There was a whole scene. Do you notice how Fifi and Charlie and the other cops, they've dropped out of this film? Yes. Like, Max is going to go to the police station, the halls of justice, to get that souped-up car. We don't see anyone. They had plans where the gang went and killed all the other cops. They just Ah. didn't have the money to do all the stuff they wanted to. That would be so good to see, you know, and it's a shame that they had these plans and couldn't pull them off and spent all of that money going to a beach and walking through a forest. Yeah, I, I, I it's not like I didn't like that as as a storyline. It just it felt like a lot of it. And Bino, I just have a problem with Bino, period. But we'll leave it at that. I think we're going to see him come back and be on Thunderdome. I'll just save it for that. Okay, well, all right. It's all set up. It all matters. This is Fast and the Furious. (laughs) But what what should matter at this point is killing. I mean, Goose got killed or close enough to it. The wife is on life support. They lie to him and say she's going to be okay. But we know she's, at the very least, going to be wounded permanently. The baby is definitely dead. So Max has every reason now, whether they killed his fellow cops or not, he has every reason to fly off the handle. This is what we want to see. For 10 minutes. It's a glorious 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as good as the opening chase. This entire movie, I wanted to give all that credit to the opening chase because that car wrecks and everything were so well done. But when they started getting the motorcycles, they did a whole lot more of that Spielberg duel, speed up the frame rate and everything looks like it's moving in a Looney Tunes fashion that robs it of kinetic energy. They did it for a couple of scenes. They don't do it a whole lot. They did it time and again. It was No, there's about three scenes they speed up the footage. It felt like a lot more than that. I would say 10 at least. No, most of the time they're really going like 180 kilometers an hour and filming it at that speed. They don't speed up the film that much. It seems every time a car is chasing a motorcycle, I hear Benny Hill music. Does Mel Gibson make a movie where he doesn't get disfigured at some point? I mean, I always feel like that's that's a staple. I haven't seen enough of him, I guess. But I always just feel like at some point, he's really going to get his ass kicked and be, like, bloody. He just loves that, you know? I, I don't think he got too disfigured in What Women Want, if memory serves. <laughs> but, yeah. Gold, Goldie Hawn did, took that role for Bird on the Wire. Yes. I, yeah, not the comedies. <laughs> Oh, I love that shot to the knee, and I love the walk he does. Like I remember when we were talking about Dawn of the Dead, the, uh, the one character that has that really painful zombie walk where it looks like he's walking on his ankles. When Mel is trying to stand up and climb to his car with that knee, it, it's a great walk. Yeah, it is amazing to see him get shot and to just limp and his sawed-off shotgun. I mean, I'm with him on his rage. I just agree with you, Stuart. It should have happened sooner, but it is a righteous rage, and you just get his hate and his anger and when these guys go down it is so fulfilling to get there but it takes so long to get there too and this is where the james cameron shot i talked about of the white lines going across the road come in i mean he's just driving and i how does he even know where they went this is the outback i think they could be anywhere but his hate is giving him homing instinct 
Yeah, I love the scene where he goes after the motorcycle riders and they do that slow motion footage. There, there is a shot where a biker just gets nailed in the back of the head by the wheel. It looks so painful. They said he just got up and walked away. It looks painful because it's in slow motion. But just when they use that slow motion footage to really show these wrecks, I, to me, that that is the fun of this film is seeing that kind of vehicular slaughter. And again, I like what the editor is doing. I, I like what, you know, they got some Star Wars wipes going on here. You know, I'm, I'm sure their stuff's missing that they'd want to have but they they work the bird motif in again a hawk lands on one of the dead bikers uh, yes it's a motif i still don't understand it birds <laughs> yeah exactly there's lots of things in the backgrounds that I love, like that bird on top of Bubba once he gets shot. There's a scene when we see Toe Cutter and his gang at the beach, and like Toe Cutter's doing like yoga in the background. There's one of the bikers named Mud Guts. He's always just like he's standing on that wall at May's farmhouse, just doing these weird poses. It's just yeah, so much weird little stuff just going on, set up to just catch your eye. Yeah, my job is not to deconstruct it. My job is simply to point out, and birds are a constant presence. They were in the the police precinct even i mean fifi was feeding them so somebody was thinking about birds i don't know why but <laughs> the editor kept it in the film and they even did this thing with wide eye like whenever someone's about to crash we get like a really extreme close-up of their eyes bulging out they do that a couple of times i thought that was fun too but of course they've got great stunts here they got good car footage but it's how you package it together and i think even though this movie is very choppy i don't put that on the editor i actually think the editor did a great job of taking bits and pieces and giving it some kind of flow, giving a style to the chaos. Now, the score is another thing. This yeah, score. Here's the thing. Go and watch that trailer with the American dub. Sounds awful. But they have a synth score. I don't know if they took it from a Carpenter film or what. Oh, but I'm like, oh, that's I what want you a needed. Synth score. Someone do a fan edit with a synth score. Yeah, this score is not good at all. And, I, you know, you get you use what you have to. But, I mean, this guy's going to come back. George Miller wanted this. He wanted this kind of score for the film. A real gothic feeling with the horror segment. I don't know. It doesn't work for me. Yeah, it, it it comes increasingly a problem here at the climax. It's underscoring things that I feel would best be not pushed. I mean, just too many horns. Just too much sax. <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't bug me one way or another. The sax did just take me back to Lethal Weapon. I was just waiting for the Eric Clapton guitar to join in. But it's not drawing me away during this last action, especially when he finally confronts Johnny there at the end. and The scene that spawned seven Saw films. Yeah, it did. I was thinking very much, hello, Johnny, we're going to play a game. Well, I was thinking Dirty Harry. I mean, you're move creep, right? I mean, this is, you know, you give the guy a shot. You know, it's not a good odds, but you give him a shot. This is a Clint Eastwood no, move. No, no, no. You weren't on Saw. This is Saw. Like, we're literally, that first film is about cut your ankle off. Oh, no. I saw Saw. No, but I'm just saying this movie is taking. You're talking about it, what it influenced. I'm talking about what yes. it's taking. This is a Clint Eastwood 1971 Dirty Harry move that they're repurposing. I just wish Mel had the gravitas of Eastwood. Yeah, I said earlier they were trying to set him up as one with that entrance. I think they did a good job. The filmmakers make him an Eastwood, but Gibson would get better in his career with his acting. I think that the Gibson I had watched in so many films would be far better at this than 1979 Mel. Let me put it this way, and this is how extreme I feel about it. If you got the money to make another one because this was so successful, I'd think about recasting. 
It sounds crazy now, of course, because Mel proved that he had talent and went on to have a huge career. But what he's giving here now, unless you were personal friends with the guy, I feel like you could get a better actor for the sequel. And no one would blink. No one would miss him at all. Well, I think what this film ended up doing, you don't change the actors. I, I think if this stayed a weird little Aussie film and you somehow got the money to do a sequel, sure. But this film ended up becoming... Uh, a success, a huge success. So people saw this one. It wasn't the next movie that was a hit. This was the hit. I, this one did a hundred million. Now that's worldwide. The second one is what would solidify Mel Gibson in the U.S. and yes. would make him a hit in the United States. But this this film, there wouldn't have been a second one if this one wasn't successful. It was successful enough to get Warner Brothers to want to distribute it in the United States. Oh, yeah. I get it. But again, I guess my comparative was, you know, Terminator was a hit, but it may have gone unrecognized. No one ever necessarily thought there would be another one. That's what I kind of thought Mad Max was, that it was only because George Miller really wanted to do more Mad Max that there was a sequel, not necessarily because it was a phenomenon. But you're saying it was it was big. I just I didn't know anyone that saw this movie. It was big enough to get a sequel two years later. Well, it was not big enough in the States where people knew what this was, though. The reason next week is called The Road Warrior is because no Americans saw Mad Max. Otherwise, they would have called it Mad Max 2. Right. But for Mad Max 1, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Mad Max? Jacob. For me, Mad Max, it is as clean and as precise as shooting a fly, getting rid of a house fly with a shotgun. It is messy. It is all over the place. But this carnage, there's something I'm drawn to. Stuart, I've seen Death Race 2000. Love that film. It doesn't speak to me the way Mad Max has spoken to me. Yeah, it's done on the cheap, but the, the way the carnage is filmed, the way the, the cinematography, again, that landscape, when you get these washed out landscapes with these bright yellow and blue cars speeding by, it, I don't know. There's something that there is a beauty to this film for as amateurish as it is for you know again mel gibson to me is a non-entity in this film that's not why i love this film it's because of the cars it's because of toe cutter it's because of johnny the boy it's it's for every reason other than mel gibson that this film i'm drawn to it for me this yeah it's a strong recommend that to me this is the indie film like if there is a film that i'd have to say hey what's an independent film that really you know, made you want to make films or what I've never really wanted to make films, but this would be the film that would get me into wanting to know about more how movies are made. It's just, it's a film that speaks to me and it's a strong recommend. Yeah, it's dirty. It's amateurish. It editing's all, from scene to scene is all over the place, but there's something to it under all that. It, it still works. It still speaks to you, I think. I feel like the greater appeal is still down the road. I have to believe this series is going to get better and that I'm really going to get it next time. I think this movie is entertaining. It's fun. It's a pulpy midnight movie. I don't think it's much better than a lot of things from this period. And frankly, I'm a little disappointed because I think I had my expectations a little higher. I thought this movie was going to have... I I didn't know it was going to be as rough as it was. And I, I thought Mel Gibson's character would play a bigger part in the story. But I get what you're saying in this much, Jacob. There are a lot of appealing elements here. To have a dystopia where pirates are essentially hijacking oil tankers, 
and anyone on the road is fair game creates a chaotic world that would feel fresh that would feel exciting it takes what had been a decade of convoy movies and Smokey and the Bandit movies and gives it a pulpier seedier Aussie exploitation edge that I like so I'm confident as we get into the series I'm going to like it even more when they get more money I think for me the big problem here is this movie is really low budget and I don't feel like it's as seamless as as you're claiming. I think a lot of people are going to have problems. I'm wondering if uh, you might want to just skip this one and see the next one, but I'll go ahead and give it a mild recommend. I'm surprised, Stuart, to hear you calling out the lack of budget for you're the, usually the most forgiving, having sat through hundreds of student films. I know, but I mean, like I said, I just thought that there was going to be more there there, but this movie is all about the car chase and the production value. So to have less money for that is really impactful. And I agree with you. I think that there's a lot in this movie that shows promise and talent, but with more money, it could have done better. The opening chase is just phenomenal, and it's really the high point of this entire movie for me. But the story, the characterizations, I mean, those are things you don't need money for, and they're not very well done. It's really the technical and the action here that tell me this director is going to go somewhere. But I was really riding that line between recommend and not recommend. The opening chase, really good, very exciting. Some of the later chases, not quite as exciting. The dystopian worldview, something I really like. All of the stuff with the wife and the trip to the beach, not so much. But what's really going to win me over is the biker gang, the thing Jacob celebrated. I mean, Jacob, you're the fan of this series. You strongly recommended this movie repeatedly in your summation, but yet you identify with the bad guys more than the <laughs> hero. And I'm mad, Jacob. I've, I've gone crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's not a good thing when your bad guys are murdering rapists, but I get it. They at least have the screen presence Mel is lacking, and they're quirky enough. I'm going to recommend this. It's not the worst world's greatest film it's a weak recommend but that opening chase and the sheer madness that is captured on screen helps offset that 15 minutes where you might be facebook status checking while it's the wife and the son the anytime mel is wearing khakis just you don't have to pay attention <laughs> but the rest of it yeah mild recommend it's really good for what it is and Stuart you came in with high expectations I came in with low El Mariachi expectations so that opening chase alone made me go oh it's not as bad as I remembered <laughs> okay well question before we head into the next film next week and obviously it's going to star Mel Gibson as a returning character would we have all enjoyed it more Jacob you included I'm most curious about your answer given what you complimented the movie for if they did didn't focus on the Max character. What if they had made it about the gangs? What if this was like Clockwork Orange or the Warriors or just about hooligans? I mean, wouldn't that be even more fun? I think I would enjoy it more if it wasn't called Mad Max and they weren't putting that character front and center. See, the weird thing is, I think I would, it would be even more entertaining if they went the opposite way, if they developed Mad Max better and give us a really solid, like, more than 10 minutes of revenge. I, again, he's such a non-entity in this film. You could go either way. Should they do more Mad Max? Should they do more the biker gang? What they do here isn't enough either way. So yeah, go with the biker gang or go more with Mad Max and develop him. Either one would improve this, I feel. I'm not saying this is a perfect film with my strong recommend. Oh, no, I get but it. But there's room for improvement here. And yes, 
they could have done something with the characters to improve it. No, yeah, yeah. I just I feel like I would be fine with this world and the, and paying attention to the bad guys than the one good cop. I feel like that was maybe the wrong hook to hang on this. But of course, it's the one they're going to develop. If I feel like Max is underdeveloped now, I'm sure they're going to develop him over at least two more films. You might like Beyond Thunderdome then, where they develop the the gangs a little bit more. Hey, that film is notable. I mean, that's the one that embedded in culture. Two men enter. It is. One man leaves. I thought that was fucking Bruce Lee film. No, it's Thunderdome. I Even I know Master Blaster. Yeah. <laughs> Break the deal, spin the wheel. All right. Well, we will find out about that next week. And in the meantime, no time for love, Dr. Jones. We're going to be reviewing Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yep, hopefully you can join us Friday. It's our Silver Level donation going on right now, and we're going to be doing four Indiana Jones films plus Goonies at the end of June. And for those who are doing gold, if you haven't heard, we're going to be doing, I guess, more dystopian future? I don't know what Westworld or Future World is, actually. It's Michael Crichton writing Jurassic Park without dinosaurs. Well, that plus the Jurassic Park quadrilogy is our gold level donation. All the information can be found at the banner at the top of our homepage. And we thank those donors for their support of our show. So thank you for listening. And now we live on only in your memories. There's been too much violence. Too much pain. Just walk away, and I spare you lives. Just walk away, and there will be an end to the horror. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Mad Max Movie Retrospective. Where is she taking them? I want them back! Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another Mad Max review, culminating with the review of the new film, Mad Max Fury Road. We're gonna stay here. And we're gonna live a long time. And we're gonna be thankful. Right? Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including the Avengers films, Blade Runner, Minority Report, the RoboCop series, and more. Wanna get through this? Let's go! You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes, and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. This is my family. I'm not going to leave these people. I'm staying. See exclusive videos and interviews on the Now Playing Podcast YouTube channel. You can find the link on our homepage. Well, there was despair. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. I got skills, I can trade them. Sorry the brothel's full. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Anything you say, anything I say, what a wonderful philosophy you have. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Anthony, Stephen, Alex, and Arnie. After my armpits and blood and shit. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. He's got word stuff from his ass to his mouth. 
The movie discussed in this podcast and the music used are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. What's a little ball at, huh? Have a nice day! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You've seen it, you've heard it, and you're still asking questions. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Okay, but what does that mean? And so began the journey north to safety, to our place in the sun. We travelled far beyond the reach of men and machines. And the road warrior, that was the last we ever saw of him. He lives now only in my memories. I don't see a lot of car-driven entertainment, and uh, I have a plane. You see a lot of plane-driven okay. entertainment, just I not really a lot of car-driven entertainment. <laughs> Maybe we should do planes after all. Stuart <laughs> might have some real insight. You know, it's not Pixar. <laughs> I know. It kind of is, though. It's a spinoff. We're not. Cha- <laughs> yeah, we're not changing. We're not doing it. Is the key. <laughs> Yeah, it was cheap. Anywhere from 350 to 400 Australian dollars. I mean, there's stories. 350 to 400? Do you mean 400,000? 1,000, yeah, sorry. <laughs> that is cheap. <laughs> I could pay for that. They can't even pay the speeding tickets for that. <laughs> courtesy of Night Riser. Courtesy, courtesy of Night Riser. Ra- Ra- and what kind of name is Sprog? I apologize to all of our listeners named Sprog, but <laughs> I, I don't know why they would. I, th- I assume that was a play name. Like, you know, my play name was Boo Bear and nobody can <laughs> use that, by the way. But, <laughs> we will never not use that. Boo yeah, Bear. Boo Bear in L.A. No, not happening. <laughs> but I will say that, yeah, that probably wasn't his real Christian name. I, I'm assuming he had uh, like a normal one, like Max Jr. <laughs> Is Jacob. Jacob still with us? Jacob has not been on the call for a while. Oh, no. I thought it was strange he was being silent. But obviously, we can't continue without... No. And I don't even see him as online. Hmm. When he comes on, just be like, so do you recommend? <laughs> Jacob. I will. <laughs> so, Jacob, Stewart, do you recommend Mad Max? Jacob. <laughs> What? Yeah, I dropped off and my whole internet died. You're making it up. Well, I'm not repeating it. We just covered the end of the movie. I'm not going to do it again. Too bad. You snooze, you lose. <laughs> We're totally kidding. All right. We knew you dropped off. It was just a big... Boy, there was hostility in that silence, wasn't there? It was. I was like, shit, we better tell before. I got scared. I was like, ooh. I'm just like, really? You're, you're going to cut me out of the entire climax as the fan? 
and Bino. First of all, isn't that a drug you take not to fart? Yes, ironically <laughs> named Bino and the yeah, Bino I, gas. I just have a problem with Bino, period. But we'll leave it at that. 